Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, titled Reducing Severe Traumatic Brain Injury in the U.S. Good afternoon. I'm Eric Kellerman, Director of RAND Health. Before I joined RAND, I practiced emergency medicine. When I started my clinical career, many people thought it odd that an ER doc would have a public health degree. But it makes sense because emergency physicians see what happens when public health fails. Richard Finman, Nobel Prize winning physicist, once observed that it takes very little energy to scramble an egg and all our science is incapable of reversing the transaction. It takes very little energy to scramble a brain too with equally lasting effects. That's why it's important to prevent as many brain injuries as possible and limit the severity of those that occur. One of the most powerful ways to do this is through effective public policies. To illustrate my point, consider the spectacular progress we've made in reducing deaths and injuries from motor vehicle crashes. Motor vehicle crashes are one of the CDC's winnable battles. The focus is justified. In addition to being a leading cause of injury-related death in the United States, motor vehicle crashes are the leading cause of traumatic brain injury-related death to Americans less than 75 years of age. Injury control experts speak of the four E's of injury prevention. They are education, enforcement of safety laws and regulations, engineering, and economic incentives. All four strategies have a public policy dimension. Let's start with the first E, education. Drivers Ed programs are a perennial favorite with state legislators and many parents. Unfortunately, they don't work. A review of three well-designed national evaluations found that Drivers Ed programs may paradoxically increase crashes by lowering the age at which teenagers become licensed without materially affecting their crash rates once they do. The study most familiar in the United States took place right here in DeKalb County in the late 1970s. Over 16,000 students were randomly assigned to three groups, standard driver's education, driver's ed plus, an 80-hour long course including classroom, simulation, driving range, and on-the-road components, and a control group that received no formal driver education. Subsequent analysis found no meaningful differences among the three groups in their subsequent rate of crashes or traffic violations. Public education doesn't work so well either. Early PR campaigns to fix the nut behind the wheel were ineffective. So were subsequent campaigns designed to convince the public to voluntarily buckle up. New passenger cars have had some form of safety belt since 1964, but as recently as 1982, voluntary rates of use were dismal. The first widespread survey conducted that year found an overall use rate of 11% among drivers and front seat passengers. With enactment of state laws and intermittent enforcement, things began to improve. But by the early 1990s, rates of belt use stagnated at around 66 to 69%. 
The breakthrough came when law enforcement agencies launched Click It or Ticket, a campaign of sustained high visibility enforcement. It boosted safety belt use rates above 80%. Public awareness and attitudes changed as well. Programs like Click It or Ticket work best in primary enforcement states where an officer can issue a citation upon observing an unbelted motorist. It's harder to motivate the public in secondary enforcement states where an officer must stop the vehicle for some other violation before a seatbelt citation can be issued. Today, it's widely accepted that the best way to boost seatbelt use above 83% and keep it there is through high visibility enforcement plus special programs to reach high risk groups such as occupants of pickup trucks, residents of rural communities, and nighttime drivers. In contrast to the steady progress with safety belt use, alcohol impaired driving has proven to be a tougher nut to crack. Between 1982 and the 90s, progress was made. Grassroots organizations like Mothers Against Drunk Driving played a role. So did high visibility DUI enforcement and intense publicity. Public policies helped as well. Examples include state laws lowering the legal limit of blood alcohol concentration to 0.8, administrative license revocation for DUI, and raising the minimum drinking age from 18 to 21. Unfortunately, since the mid-1990s, rates of alcohol-impaired driving have plateaued. As a result, impaired driving still causes one-third of fatal crashes and an ongoing toll of traumatic brain injuries. In contrast to driver's ed, graduated driver's licensing laws work. GDL is a three-phase system for beginning drivers. The learner's permit only allows driving under the supervision of a fully licensed adult, typically a parent. An intermediate license follows. It allows supervised, unsupervised driving, but with certain significant restrictions. Together, these two phases allow a young driver to log vital hours of experience behind the wheel before graduating to a full unrestricted license. Now, the most stringent GDL programs, those with at least a six-month holding period during the learner stage, nighttime restrictions beginning no later than 10 p.m., and only one teen passenger in the car were associated with a 38% reduction in fatal crashes and a 40% reduction in injury crashes among 16-year-old drivers. Some of these benefits of GDL may be offset by higher rates of fatal crashes involving 18-year-old drivers. Perhaps the thinking goes that more teens are putting off getting their driver's license to avoid the hassles of GDL and are therefore getting on the road at 18 without the benefit of those extra hours behind the wheel. Now, even if this is true, and more research is needed, it doesn't diminish the benefits of graduated driving licensing for younger drivers. Motorcycle helmet laws are effective as well. The first helmet law was enacted as far back as 1966, but by 1975, universal helmet laws were in place in 47 states in the District of Columbia. But after federal Penalties were eliminated in 1975. About half the states repealed their statutes. Since then, several states have reenacted or repealed their helmet laws.
But one thing is clear, motorcycle helmets protect bikers' heads in a crash. A Cochrane review found that helmets decrease the risk of death in a crash by 42% and decrease the risk of head injury by fully 69%. And states that adopt helmet laws quickly see usage rates climb to 90% or higher. Conversely, states that repeal their laws see helmet use rates plummet to 15%, and rates of fatal injury closely track changing rates of helmet use. Now, some of our biggest policy successes in motor vehicle safety haven't come from changing the behavior of drivers. They've come from changing the behavior of manufacturers through regulation. They have come from encouraging that third E, engineering, Today, automobiles are engineered to be crashworthy. Key features include a strong occupant compartment, a safety cage, crumple zones that absorb the force of a serious crash, side elements that resist vehicle intrusion, and a strong roof that won't collapse in a rollover. Initially, occupant restraints were limited to seat belts and maybe later frontal airbags. Today, supplemental side and curtain airbags protect your head, your chest, and other vital organs from side impacts. A car with curtain airbags, in fact, saved my son's life and his uh, suffering a traumatic brain injury in a side impact crash. Now, once manufacturers fought safety regulations tooth and nail, but at some point, auto execs realized, wait a minute, if the car sacrifices itself to save you, you're gonna need to buy another car. Mandatory crash testing is another valuable policy. Based on dynamic testing, new cars today earn a crash worthiness rating. Today, safety sells. Thanks to organizations like NHTSA, Consumer Reports, and the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, consumers can quickly get objective information about a car's safety features and crash worthiness. No matter how good we get at preventing crashes, some will still occur. And when they do, prompt and effective treatment makes all the difference. Trauma centers save lives. That's why regionalized trauma care systems strive to get the right patient to the right hospital at the right time. CDC's new trauma triage guidelines will help. Properly implemented, they'll save thousands of lives and tens of millions of dollars annually. Surviving the immediate injury is one thing. Full recovery is another. Rehabilitation benefits brain-injured patients. Notable policy gaps remain. They include better evidence on how to evaluate sports-related concussions and when an injured participant can be allowed to return to play. Access to care is important, not only for daily emergencies, but in disasters. Currently, access to trauma, care, and rehabilitation is inadequate in many parts of the United States, particularly rural and frontier communities. The biggest policy challenge in rehabilitation is the current disconnect between what science says is good care, a comprehensive rehabilitation program, and what is covered by public and private insurers. Insurers say they want to fund evidence-based treatment, but the evidence base is thin on several important questions. Public policy is not static. In the current political landscape, concerns about personal freedom can trump even robust evidence of the benefits of helmet and seatbelt laws, product safety regulations, and even laws that discourage impaired driving. 
Funding is also a problem. At a time when health care is consuming a growing share of federal, state, and family budgets, it'll be hard to convince policymakers to adequately fund DMS, trauma care, and rehabilitation. Nevertheless, it's important to acknowledge how far we've come. A little more than 10 years ago, the CDC identified motor vehicle safety as one of the 10 greatest public health achievements of the 20th century. And earlier this year, the CDC recognized motor vehicle safety as one of the 10 significant public health achievements of the last decade. Thanks to smart public health policies, hundreds of thousands of people, including my son, are alive and well today. Motor vehicle injuries are more than a winnable battle. It's a battle we're winning. Thank you very much. Now, we have a few minutes for questions. I have a question for Dr. Wright. Uh, David, early on when we were doing this work with progesterone and everyone thought that Don was crazy, it, whenever I would tell someone that we were exploring a potentially promising therapy that had all of these beneficial effects, seemed to work really well in experimental animals, and we even had some uh, provocative uh, clinical data in humans, they would get really excited and they go, what is it? What is it? And I would say, it's progesterone. And the next reaction invariably was they would laugh. Has that changed? Well, uh, <clears throat> I still feel like we're swimming upstream. Uh, and yeah, we, we still get giggles. We, uh, we get laughs. We get a lot of disbelief. Um, and uh, that's what our phase three multicenter clinical trial is here to prove. Um, it's interesting. If we had discovered progesterone in the brain first, uh, it is produced in the brain. In fact, it's the only hormone steroid slash produced in the brain. It's called a neurosteroid. If we discovered it there first, we may have a completely different perception of what progesterone does because it's made in the brain, by the brain, for the brain. And it only happened that we discovered it in the ovaries first and its role in the menstrual cycle. And indeed, it may be that its effect during pregnancy is to coat the brain and during the fetal development. Uh, that is hypothesized by a number of GYN and also neuro experts. It also sort of is an example of how the body uses different compounds in different places for different purposes. Uh, and it's just a beautiful example of, of the human body and, 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 uh, and how it does that. As you all heard from Lisa's opening remarks, injury in general and brain injury in particular does seem to be linked to the Y chromosome. And I think it's a cruel trick of fate that had only testosterone been the effective agent for brain injury, we would probably have lines around the block at every pharmacy waiting to buy it. <laughs> Thank you for participating. Brain injuries matter. They can be prevented. We can make a difference. And we are winning this battle. Thank you. You've been listening to Public Health Grand Rounds from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.